This is Cinephile. This is incredible. Will Light won Best Picture. One of the best actors alive here in the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Viggo Mortensen. It's like one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd, yet when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man, I just got finished saying how you have to be on point vocal. Is Jim Brockmeyer, and I completely punted that one. It's going to be an epic show today. That's all I can tell you. Cinephile in full effect. Who knew the amount of stars we'd be bringing in today? Miles Teller, the first ever two time guest here on Cinephile. Miles and I go way back now with Celebrity Softball. We're also going to have the writer director of a film called My Friend Dahmer. That's right. It's not some other Dahmer you may have heard of, like a Bill Dahmer who works in sales. No, no, this would be Jeffrey Dahmer and this new film starring Roz Lynch and Anne Heche. Terrific. Uh, in fact, Richard Whitaker of the Austin Chronicle says, At the core is an unnerving and mesmerizing performance by Austin and Ali star Lynch, who may have managed the most revolutionary reinvention for a Disney Channel alum since Ryan Gosling. I don't know Ross Lynch's work on the Disney Channel, but he plays Jeffrey Dahmer, and he certainly is very chilling in this film. We're also going to have reviews of Spielberg, LBJ, another LBJ movie. I didn't know anything about LBJ. We watched the Brian Cranston movie. Me and Stanzik love uh, Brian Cranston all the way with LBJ. And now LBJ with Woody Harrelson. Rob Reiner is the writer and director, which brings me to the first question. Let's start with this. We're going to hope to get Rob Reiner on the next edition of Cinephile. We're talking back and forth. And then I said, um, we're hopefully going to get him next week. And they said, you can come to New York if you'd like. And I love Rob Reiner. But Stan's a true question to you. Would you drive two hours and 15 minutes to New York City, interview Rob Ryan for 15 minutes, and then drive back two hours and 15 minutes? I would not. <laughs> so we're going to have Rob Reiner probably on the phone, and he's going to be great. But I, I did mull it over. I said, well, how many people, like if, you know, I don't know, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, where's your line? What's your right. line of people you drive? I mean, you drove four or five hours for Robert De Niro, obviously. That's right. you. Right. But you sort of think, like, Jake, if Jake Gyllenhaal was in Pass. Boston. He wouldn't drive an hour no. and 40 minutes to go meet Joan Jake Hall? Gyllenhaal, 15 no. minutes. Get, he get comes here. Gyllenhaal's been here. Come on. <laughs> Come to me. But I hear I hear Rob Reiner's a great guy. Like I was like, I heard he's really funny. He's a good dude. Okay. <laughs> we'll find out in the next Hopefully he's funny the on the phone. phone. Yeah. Tim Kirk's going to be so jealous. He just, he's, he'll just want, hey, did you ask him about All in the Family? I'm like, no, I didn't ask him about Meathead. He's heard that every day of his life. Well, I want to ask him about Wolf of Wall Street. He's hilarious. He's uh, Jordy's dad. Um, but also we're going to be talking about, yes, Woody Harrelson, this film, LBJ, My Friend Dahmer, and also Spielberg, which is one of my favorite movies of the year. Dan, did you see it? I did. Incredible. Very I, good. I could talk about Spielberg for two hours. If you had to do a Spielberg top five, good luck. Yeah, that's going to be nearly impossible. But the biggest news right now is our boy Ben Lyons is in the house. So rather than, you know, I'll give some of those reviews of movies, but listen, Ben can talk Spielberg as much as anybody. So he's going to join me for the reviews. He's going to join us for the interview with Miles Teller. More importantly... How are you doing, my man? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here and be in the presence of Dan Stanzik. <laughs> He's a social media icon, somebody I hear his voice across multiple platforms, but to see him live in the flesh, 
Those cheekbones. What do you got? Almond butter up here in Bristol? You, you've never met Dan Stancic before? I don't I think I, think I did Rosillo for two days and he didn't really talk to me. But that was a while ago. So now I feel like we're family because I got him a uh, hotel pass for the Oscars. That was the hotel. That, that was your <laughs> best access. line. That was your best line. You go, hotel access. The fact that Stancic passed on that was the best move of the entire Oscars weekend. Yeah. Good, good lesson out there for cinephiles. Pass on hotel access and uh, <laughs> pass on two hours each way for Rob Reiner. People, have you ever met Rob Reiner before? I have. Yeah, great guy, right? I did an interview down the street that's living in L.A. <laughs> you guys up here, you know, you're looking at ways. Did you get... Uh, an Emmy yet? We won the Emmy. Did we talk to Megan about this? Can we get... No no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Not even in my wheelhouse. The Oscars all Not access. We won an Emmy. It was all Ben that won the oh, Emmy. Oh, congratulations to you, Adnan. I've done the show. I think that was my fourth time doing it with those guys. Never won an Emmy before. <laughs> Bring in Adnan. Next thing you know, I'm calling people for a paperweight. Like, I'm, what's the deal? Where's I'm, this paperweight? I'm trying to find the actual phrasing of the Emmy because it's just so convoluted. Right, it's best, as social you, media, interactive media within a live stream program. When you grew up as a young boy with dreams of being a <laughs> broadcaster, you said, one day I would love to be a co-host on best interactive live digital cross-promotion platform synergy. What did it say? On Involving Troy Gentile and Sophia Carson. <laughs> like, all right, we did it. Hopefully we get to go back. Hopefully we get to go to Sundance. Hopefully we get to go to Comic-Con. There's so much that we want to do. But here's the biggest thing. The audience wants to know. We've been talking about, you're well aware of this bit we've been doing now. Ben Lyons Top movies best. of the 2000s. That's right. So you have your top movies of the 2000s. Nobody wants this more than Dan. So Just go ahead. R- real quickly, we did ours on June 23rd. It is currently October 27th. So we gave you a four-month grace period. Still within the 2000s. (laughs) He's still got some time on that level. A, he was moving. B, part owner of a deli. So there's been stuff going on. Yeah, we just opened in Century City. Got our third location there. What's the name of it again? uh, Wexler's Deli. Best smoked fish in L.A., says Jonathan Gold. Great documentary. (laughs) Jonathan Gold. Right? He says best smoked fish (laughs) in L.A. Um, Before we get into this list. Sure. Any kind of qualifiers? Any kind of... Just the... Best movies of the 2000s. Ben Lyons' favorite movies. Best lines, yes, yeah, so far the last 17 years. All right, well, I, I, have, I have some qualifiers of my own. The best sports film of the 2000s, it's The Wrestler. Mickey Work yes. deserved the Oscar that year. It went to Sean Penn, who any other year, Milk. Harvey Milk, would be deserving. But I think the redemption story and so much of Mickey's own life is in that role. Mm-hmm. Not really looked at as a sports movie alongside Major League and what's on my sweatshirt now, White Man, White Can't, Man Jump. Can't Jump, and you know, those kind of typical quote unquote sports movies. The Wrestler, what? really, and, and also just a, a wonderful performance from Evan Rachel Wood as his daughter, whose relationship is broken. There was a documentary a few years before that, Beyond the Mat, about yeah. Jake the Snake Roberts, <laughs> and that. there's a lot of that in this movie. So The Wrestler, right. Darren Aronofsky, that's on the list. That's Marissa Tomei sure. playing a stripper. So that's uh, best sports film on the list. Mm-hmm. I took a lot of. I knew Stancy was going to be here, so I <laughs> did some work on the flight today. <laughs> I love um, this. A lot of notes. The 2000s will be defined at the box office by the superhero genre. Correct. I mean, there are so many superhero movies. It seems like every month, the biggest, best, all of them is The Dark Knight. Obviously, Heath Ledger wins the Oscar only on screen. I think for 18 minutes in that film. Is it that long? Um, wow. 20 minutes tops, maybe. Wow. Um, but The Dark Knight. The event movie of the 2000s, I say. Uh, all right, so we got sports film, superhero movie. Best true story of the 2000s is The Social Network. Um, took a moment in history and, and captured it and introduced us to the talents of Andrew Garfield. Um, really see Jesse Eisenberg in a leading man role. And, and that film 
from that opening sequence with Rooney Mara is just sucks you into the world of Harvard and you stole their website right. and the whole thing and the Winklevoss. You know how many times a woman with like three glasses of Chardonnay at a wedding has come up to me and said <laughs> you were great in the social network? <laughs> I could just imagine your face like, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. That that whole first scene, Sorkin's dialogue, it just hits the ground running. Every aspect of filmmaking is on display. Acting, Love the score. Visual, the score. The Trent Reznor. It yeah. just gets under your skin. That is an incredible movie. And think about, too, what it represents, right? It's like so many young people now who have aspirations of creating an app with their friends. And they've almost learned not to sell ads because of watching The Social Network, right? right. So that film, obviously, I think the most uh, important or well-done true story on the list. Okay? Should it have won Best Picture over The King's Speech? Funny story about the King's Speech. Yes, it should have. Funny should... story about the King's okay, Speech. Okay, we'll get that later because you're in the blurb. Quick, quick, quick story about the King's Speech. I interviewed Puff Daddy once. He's like, who's going to win Best Actor? I'm trying to learn about acting. I said, this guy Colin Firth, the King's Speech, plays the King George, got a speech impediment. He goes, yo, that sounds hot. I'm like, mm, that really sounds hot. He goes, yo, give me that DVD. I'm like, um, I'm not, I don't really give out my screeners. Two weeks later, I'm at the E! Channel. I hear a knock on my office. Yo! Lion's in. Where's that King's speech? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, Puff Daddy. Uh, I got uh, True Grits. I got a Harry Potter. I got, I got literally every other screener but the King's speech. Nah, man, I need that King's speech. Fast forward four weeks later, a woman named Capricorn shows up at my house at 3.30 in the morning in a white Range Rover for the King's speech. I get, got it to Puff Daddy. Saw him at a party, and he's like, you were right, man. That was hot. He loved it, all right? Yes. There you go. This is great. I just saw it. All right. So to answer your question, I think Social Network should have won that year. But Um, you're in the blurb for the King speech. I am? I watched it again. Really? I will text you the picture. In the trailer, it says, destined to be an Oscar favorite at Ben Lyons E-Network. Also in the uh, materials for the remake of Arthur, but we don't need to talk (laughs) about that. So um, I'm going to go with, let's see, we have... The funniest movie, the funniest movie of the 2000s is A 40-Year-Old Virgin, and Steve Carell deserved an Oscar nomination for that movie. He honestly did. I know it sounds crazy, but for whatever reason, comedic performances are not honored at the Academy Awards, Mm -hmm. and he is so just earnest, and the way he could talk about an egg salad sandwich, I equate it to you talking about a Scorsese film for five minutes, (laughs) and a paprika, and I got the eggs, and it's just five minutes of of not. That movie's terrific. We were introduced to Jonah Hill for the first time, worked mm-hmm. at an eBay store. Captain Keener's perfectly cast. Yep. Um, the 40-Year-Old Virgin is the funniest movie. I'll be going to big back seat. I'm going to put my bike in it. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth Banks. Woo! <laughs> Good soundtrack um, to Asia. Needs, and nobody moment. needs me to to do Gladiator and Lost in Translation. I know he needs those. Me, lo- right? no, he loves Lost in Translation. Dan wants to hear Great him. movie. Um... I'm gonna gladiators in there though, and Lost in Translation are in there. No, no like, periphery. Okay, yeah, not really. Um, oh, oh, best documentary of the 2000s. I hate to say it while I'm here, but the OJ doc. Wow, the OJ doc's the listening. best documentary of the 2000s. <laughs> it really is. Have yeah. you ever seen a, a documentary grab a hold of the zeitgeist from when they showed the first three hours at Sundance in January, all the way through the Academy Awards 14 months later? Had everyone talking race in America, OJ. We all thought we'd seen everything about that. But you learned a whole lot about Los Angeles, about other cases that led into it. That film will be taught in schools around the world forever. Um, Ben, real quick, uh, you've been been rattling off these qualifiers here. The suspense is killing me. Have we gotten to the top ten yet or we're still winning? These are all top ten. 
These are yeah. So we got four on the top ten. These are in the top. I hit you with Social Network as the best true story. I hit you with a documentary, the OJ movie. You got the best. Uh, sports film, The Wrestler, funniest movie, The Forty Year Old Virgin. So these are all in the top. Yeah, yeah. I, thought I thought these were, thought these the were like two. the preamble. No, 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 way, gla- no. Gladiator, Lost in Translation are not. No. Everything else is. By the way, you've had a lot of people share their top tens. Yeah. Has anyone else put these qualifiers, taken this much thought, <laughs> had the best sports film? I'm well, gonna hit you. Bet I gotta gotta be honest. Everyone else has ranked ten, nine, eight, seven, mm. six, five, four, three, two, one. And it, you've it, just been giving us funniest, best doc. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's got subsets. Yeah. Got no, it's good. I, I, yeah. I, I wasn't sure we were there yet. Let's go next to best foreign film. We yeah, got yeah. City of God. City like, of God. City yes. of God is is such an incredible piece of uh, of cinema, and uh, something about watching as as an American film goer. Something about watching. Uh, a part of the world you've never been to, and, and seeing it through a child's eyes mm-hmm. that can really kind of educate you on that part of the world and the people's problems and everything going on there. And that film is terrifying and real and beautiful. City of God makes the list. Um, all right, no more qualifiers. Stan wants to get right to the business. Fine. <laughs> we'll go ahead and with traffic. You know, wow. Tra- you know, listen, a layered story that takes on an issue that is affecting every single person in this country. We all know somebody who's addicted. We all know somebody who um, has been in, well, I don't know if we all know somebody who's been involved in the drug business, but lots of us do. <laughs> um, point over to some people yeah. behind the glass. Those of us from Syracuse. But, but I love when a, when a, when a you know, a fictional movie can take on real life issues in yeah. a way that brings it to your back door. I mean, it takes you right right into the into the thick of it. So traffic. Not a, not a huge Soderbergh fan, but I thought traffic was great. But would you say it's his most? I think it's his best. His best resonates. Right? The, the color filters. The, the color filters are crazy, and yeah. Cheadle's amazing in it. And yeah. that scene with Catherine Zeta Jones having brunch with all her girlfriends, and she realizes that life has kind of left her. And yeah. it's uh, traffic makes the list. My brother hates traffic. By the way, he thinks it always sucks. But he's going to love The Dark Knight on your Where's list. Where's his top ten yeah. list? Yeah. He's had a lot of superheroes you know? in there. Yeah. Um, I think all the Spider-Mans made his. <laughs> <laughs> Spider-Man was his favorite movie of the 2000s. Um, I, you know, we all love movies for not only um, the heroes, but we love movies for the villain. And no better villain than Javier Bardem in No Country for All Men. That dude was so creepy and, and got underneath your skin and that pump gun and... You know, Woody Harrelson, what a, first of all, what a career. Woody, Woody Harrelson, very underrated. No country. Supremely underrated. No country's a big boy movie. That's, yeah. that's a grown-up movie. That's a, <laughs> right? That's a grown-up big boy movie. Yeah. So uh, that makes the list. What are we at? Six? Mm-hmm. I got you for eight, but I may be for doing eight? math wrong. No, you just really want to see Lost in Translation. You ready? No, I got you. Sports for the Wrestler, Comic Book, The Dark Knight, True Story, The Social Network, uh, Funniest, 40-Year-Old Virgin, Documentary, O.J., Foreign film, City of God, Traffic, No Country. That's eight. Oh, eight. Well done, Stan. Oh, boy, Danny. All right. Well, I got two more. I'll, I'll figure that out next time. We got to. No, 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 hang on. No, no, hang on. Almost Famous is one of them. Yeah, Almost Famous is on the list. You love yes, Almost I do Famous. Almost, almost Famous. Right. I heard you guys talk about how white guys love Almost Famous. <laughs> I'm a white guy. I don't know if that's why I like the movie, but I really love that movie. That movie's beautiful. As someone who had a job... Like, I was way too young to have my job. I think we've all kind of had that experience where you get a job and it can be as mundane, as as silly as, you know, being a soccer ref for kids, but you're not old enough to do it or you work at a Rolling Stone or you work at ESPN or whatever it is. Whatever it is you do in your life, we've all had that opportunity where you're like, okay, I'm coming into my own as a man, as a woman to figure out this next phase of adulthood. And that's that. That movie captures that that line between adulthood and naive and innocence and all that stuff. 
Right. And uh, man, everybody's met a penny in their life. So I don't. I know you guys aren't almost famous fans around these parts. Yeah. No, Ben, I'm in. I'm white, so yeah. I'm in. I'm almost famous. We will always be uncool. Um, right. and Lester then, Bangs. You know, I didn't really want to come with ten. I'm still. It's a work in progress, Stanzik. You know, but. Meeting you here in person today Is has me Eddie? feeling... Eddie, Whoopi Goldberg, Nick's. That yeah. was not in the 2000s, come on. <laughs> oh, damn it. Um, Something Nick's related. You know, I hate to say Slumdog, but that movie's awesome. Oh, yeah, that's great. That I had it at number eight. Yeah, I know it's not it. original to uh-huh. say it's the best, uh-huh. but that's this list, right? It's just the best. And Slumdog, yeah. um, that scene when that little boy gets covered in all the... <laughs> oh, oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my God. It truly puts you in the thick of it. There's yes, no question yes. about it. And guy, was that the no? A, it was Avatar and Hurt Locker was the same year. I remember Slumdog Ben Button, and I was a big Ben Button guy. Yeah, 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 I yeah. loved Ben Button. And, and when I look back now, I'm like, what was I doing? I mean, that movie's amazing. 13 <laughs> Oscar nominations, but Slumdog's a piece of film that will live forever and uh, introduced us to Dev Patel and Frida Pinto and just uh, Danny yeah, Boyle's so best friend. That makes the list. Um, uh, honorable mentioned, uh, I just have to for the internet trolls. I am legend. It's not on the list. No, no, he always gets killed for that. It's not it's, on the no, list, no, but it's, it's one no, of the better no, movies no, of the 2000s. No, I can't, I can't have a list and not give a shout out to <laughs> What was it on? What show, community or one of those shows they referenced? Community. Yeah. yeah. Daniel Pudi. Shout Daniel out to Daniel Pudi. So. All right, that's my list. Uh, I know uh, maybe a little anticlimactic. Uh, I tell you what, I think the wait was worth it. It was it was good. It I like the qualifiers. List. I just I was confused. Is all it was. I like the list. It was I, good. It's I better than come up here, Dan, and be like, okay, at number ten, Gladiator. Right. At number nine, Memento. That's what 10, we did, yeah. and it was great. Of our lists, the only one you had Slumdog, and I had The Wrestler on mine. I don't have any issue. All of Ben's movies are good, but we just all have different tastes, obviously. I just wish we could do it by directors, right? You know, right. throw in, you know, Tenenbaums and Steve Zizou I, I like t- one genre. You know what I mean? Yeah. He gets his own genre yeah. there. But all right, we got Ben Lines' best for the decade. It good news. All right, let's talk movies. Have you seen Spielberg yet on HBO? Uh, I have not, waiting okay. for more people to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> You want the entire film to be spoiled, which we're going to do now. No, but I did watch Lonzo Ball versus John Wall the other night. That was a good one. Lonzo yeah. doesn't lose twice in the same week. <laughs> Spielberg, Dan, the floor is yours. You start first because I have a lot to say. No, Spielberg. you go. Go right ahead. Right, I, I saw it. I saw you tweet about it. I knew we'd be talking about it. Right. HBO had to do it. It's great. Here's what Ben knows. Anybody who's a sophisticated cinephile knows this about Spielberg. There's never been a filmmaker who's put such personal passions and had such widespread success. Because ultimately, if you look at Spielberg and you say he's a really commercial filmmaker, his movies have grossed billions of dollars. E.T., Jaws, Jurassic Park, blah, blah, blah. But as this documentary proves that over and over again, these movies are always about families being separated and reconciliation. Like his family's divorce. Like if you look at our lives, anyone's lives, there's just like five to ten events that will impact you no matter what. And for Spielberg, he just keeps coming back to the fact this divorce of his parents was just so overwhelming to him. And he always finds, whether it's Minority Report, just a quick scene of Tom Cruise wanting to play catch with his son, or whether it's the whole concept of Close Encounters, that the way we can relate to these aliens is by finding ourselves. It's amazing to me, for a guy who is known, like Brian De Palma says, he's the most famous filmmaker in the world. If you just say filmmaker, everyone knows Spielberg, just word association. And yet he's a guy who's really put in his personal taste. He's not Michael Bay. He's not a guy who's just out there to make money uh, and be grossly commercial. Spielberg actually does it on a personal level, right, Dan? He does. And it, it was interesting actually watching his family get interviewed throughout the documentary as well. Like his sisters both talk about it. They'd say, it, it's kind of, I don't want to reveal too much about it, but his parents got divorced and they end up back together yeah. later in life. They're both still alive. And it was, it was fascinating to see how much that affected him throughout his entire life. It was also interesting that 
like he was kind of a loner growing up, and movies for him were an, an escape, and they became his life. Right. And now he's super famous. It's great. Also, has such an appreciation for history, right? right. To take on films like War Horse, or right. you know, or the one that Mark Mark Rylance won the Oscar for with Tom Hanks, yeah, Bridge of Spies. Bridge of Spies. Yep. You know, he could have gone, like you said, the Michael Bay of the '80s and special right. effects and event movies in Indiana Jones and ET and iconic. Americana entertainment that can be exported around the world. Yeah. But his passion for history has led him to create some really memorable works that are important to educate audiences about a, a specific event or a time in, in time in, in history. And, right. And he, of course, I mean, we talk about personal and in history. There was nothing more personal to him, I think, than Schindler's List. Right. Right. And he mentions that he was like as a kid. You know, we were Jewish in Phoenix, Arizona, and there was no other Jews there. And he did not want to re- be recognized as Jewish. He goes, in fact, I played with my buddies, and my grandpa would be like, Shmuel, Shmuel, which is Stephen in Yiddish. And he goes, I felt so self-conscious. Like, I just want, I was so humiliated. And he's like, Shmuel, he goes, who's he talking to? I'm like, I, I don't know. He's like, is, that, is that your name? And he goes, I did not, I don't want to say I didn't identify as Jewish, but I was not practicing for a very long time. And it was only after, I think, his second marriage to Kate Capshaw that he got in touch with his Judaism again. And he said, with Schindler's List, he goes, I really had to reconnect with that with that whole um, lifestyle, my upbringing, a lot of things that I had kind of submerged, but I felt it was so important. But just to double back to the origins, Jaws, as you know, very famously, wildly over budget, shot way too many days. He had to shoot on the water, which he didn't realize how tough that was. He was like, man, the, the, the seasickness affecting people, just to be able to get the sharks to work out right. It, everyone thought it was going to be a huge bomb. And he was with Marty that night. Him and Scorsese were driving around, and they started seeing the lines for Jaws. They're like, oh, my God, like you've got a huge hit on your hands. And then he said, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, Robert Shaw, people would ask him, were you scared of the shark? It's this big mechanical shark. He goes, no, 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 I wasn't scared of the shark. Right. I was scared when I was sliding down the boat that there'd be a rusty nail up there and that my back would get ripped open. So I oh. was just afraid the whole time. I had a mechanical that's shark, right. whatever. Yeah, yeah. But the back on getting my nails in my back, that's what freaked me out the that's whole time. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Because then the, the, the documentary talks with the Brat Pack, which you've talked about, about you know him and Marty and Lucas and uh, De Palma and Couple, they're all buddies all hanging out. And Marty has this great line. He goes, yeah, he goes, we'd hang out. He goes, and we'd, we'd visit each other's sets. We'd give advice. He goes, you know, be critical, but not too critical. <laughs> he goes, that big Marty laugh. He's like, you know, just, you know, just tell me. Like, hey, would you like a mean streets? Okay, it's all right. So he said it was fun, but everybody was embracing each other because everybody had all these passions. And think about it. For you and me, it'd be like if we were geeking out with a bunch of DVDs, these guys didn't have DVDs, didn't have VHS players. They'd be like, oh, I have this exclusive print of this Truffaut film, The 400 Blows. Let's come over Friday night and watch the movie. Like, they'd get the projector out. Like, this is their Friday night. These guys are real movie geeks. And they all kind of shared off that passion. So obviously he makes Jaws. Close Encounters is a hit. But around the time of Indiana Jones, George Lucas producing, he goes, I'm trying to get Spielberg in. They go, no. Studios don't want him. His movies make money, but they're over budget, and, and they get delayed and not worth it. So Spielberg goes, I had to do it for my buddy George. Like, I couldn't let him down. I had to get the movie on time, on budget, and make Indiana Jones well. So that movie obviously sings. E.T., again, personal reconciliation, divorce, the whole issues of him and his family. Quick Indiana Jones story. You know the scene where um, uh, Indy's got the duel with the guy, and he just yeah. pulls out the gun and shoots him. You know the story yeah, about that's that, in, right? Yeah, that's in the doc. Yeah. But, yeah, that Harrison Ford was deathly sick that day and had the flu and didn't want to do multiple takes, so that's why he just pulled out his gun and shot him. Oh, I didn't going, know that. Yeah, that should be in the documentary. Yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. great he's, story. He's just like, I'm not doing this 100 times. I'm sick. He had the fever. It was hot. So he's right. like, oh, I'll shoot him once. <laughs> that's yeah. like the most iconic scene. Yeah, that the giant boulder. Um, so, anyways, kind of what Ben was alluding to, the fact that Spielberg would make films about history. What the documentary really nails is that when he did The Color Purple, 
he got scorched for it. You know, he didn't get nominated for the Oscar. He got 11 nominations, but he wasn't up for director. And people will love the books that this is not a faithful adaptation. There was one lesbian scene, which he himself said, I recoiled from. I didn't feel comfortable showing it that explicitly. And they go, this isn't fair. And, and this is what happens. And you know this better than anybody. Once people see you a certain way, you get typecast. And it's like the critics wouldn't let Spielberg be serious. They go, no, no, you do E.T. and you do fronts. Yeah, you're a popcorn director. You're not going to be a real. Exactly. You do that. You're not allowed to be the color purple. Empire of the Sun, not allowed to do that. Nope. Serious film. You can't do that. Christian Bale. like That's one of Rosillo's five favorite movies. I haven't seen it in a long time. I'd like to revisit it. But he loves it. He swears by it. And so it was so unfair that Spielberg wanted to be the serious director, but nobody would let him do that. I often wonder how many actors and directors can't get out of their own space because nobody will give them that chance. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Hollywood is such an industry of, oh, what have you done for me lately? And let's do it again because we all got rich, right? So you see right. a lot of directors and a lot of actors, too, kind of just fall into the same. I mean, look at Christoph Waltz. You know, this is a guy who has been working as a character actor for years, gets this role that changes his life in Bastards. And then now, how many times do we see him play the villain? Right. I mean, seriously, and I, I don't blame him. He's getting to work in big, high-profile projects. But we've seen Christoph Waltz be the scary <laughs> villain of 10 times in the last five years. From right. terrible things like the Seth Rogen Green, uh, Green Hornet movie right. to, I don't know, you see him in a Bond movie. Like, it just, right. He's all in, can we see him in a romantic movie? Can right. we see him as a trainer in a boxing movie? Like, let's switch right. it up a little. And it's not even to his fault. Maybe that's all he's getting offered. Yeah, and that's where Spielberg at least was, was able to break out of it. Of course, Schindler's List, they talk about it in detail, and he just said it was just obviously so difficult as you can imagine. Liam Neeson tells a great story. He said the one famous scene where Oscar's smoking a cigarette at the start, right? And he shoots it beautiful black and white. Spielberg said, I had to restrain myself. Very little uh, jib, very little you know wide shots. A lot of handheld, because I don't do much handheld, but I, I told Janusz Kaminski, the cinematographer, a lot of handheld on this, especially the scene where they're being evacuated from the ghetto. Um, ben Kingsley said it was just so so rough and so brutal the way it was being done. But Neeson, that early scene where he's smoking, watching everybody drinking his cognac, he said, Spielberg did not smoke at the time, and I did. And he's telling me how to smoke. He's like, okay, hold it, hold it a little longer. Okay, now go, now let the smoke exhale. Okay, now that's good. All right, now stare away, now cut. And after Liam Neeson's telling Ben Kingsley, he goes, listen, if this is what's going to be, screw it. Like, I don't want to do it. Like, it's, I, I, I'm not a puppet. Like, I'm an actor here. And Kingsley said to him, every great conductor needs a soloist. Like, at some point, he's going to need you to kind of go off on your own. So just be his vessel to tell the story, which is so important to him. And just the way that they were able to shoot that film, like, it's a really beautiful film. Like, shot in that really sleek black and white. And- Stanzik knows the Gilbert Godfrey story. Oh, tell the Gilbert Godfrey story. I don't. My dad saw Schindler's List with Gilbert Godfrey, and he walked out, and he goes, that could never happen. <laughs> Only Gilbert Godfrey <laughs> dropped that line. If I ever meet Gilbert Godfrey, I'm like, oh, I heard uh, you saw Schindler's List with Jeffrey Lyons. I was curious what your take that on that could never was. happen. If right. anyone's keeping track at home, we now have Ben on the record with a Christoph Waltz impression <laughs> and a Gilbert Godfrey impression. In his serious Spielberg review. I love it. One yeah. more story. And Saving- a Green Hornet reference. <laughs> Last one, Saving Private Ryan. They're supposed to shoot this beautiful scene, and the lighting is not right. And Tom Hanks says, I don't know if Spielberg was mad at himself or Matt, the crew, or whomever, but he goes, he took a walk. He's like, i, I got to figure this out because we can't shoot this way. Because he came back in 15 minutes later and goes, okay, here's how we're going to do this. And it was such an intricately detailed shot. And Hanks goes, like, that's a great actor. Just like an athlete, just like anybody who's a pro, they go, all right, let me troubleshoot this like this. You move here, you go do this, you do that, and now we're going to figure this thing out. And he goes, that is a true pro. It's not just when things are supposed to go according to plan, laying it out perfectly. It's when things are not going well and being a master director and trying to f- solve it all. So I think it's a really special film. Dan, one more thought on Spielberg. 
I don't have much more. I, I, I just, I was never a huge fan of all his early stuff. It predates me a little bit, so I never really went back and watched all of his powerful films. Yeah. But just the depth of films that he made that we know about is incredible. Like I said, if you had to do, we always do the actor spotlight. Normally, it's been actors. We did one yeah. director. Who did we do? Was it Chris Nolan? We I did think? Nolan. We did Nolan. So if you had to do top five Spielberg, I don't know how you would do it. Yeah, it'd be very challenging. Um, by well, the way, Dan, uh, Ben mentioned Warhorse. They don't touch Warhorse. They mentioned Munich, which if you talk to a certain segment of people, they go, that's a great, great film, which really never gets mentioned much. They showed a couple of clips from Eric Bana. The scene on the stairwell is really good. He goes, that, again, serious topic about Jewish-Palestinian relations that Spielberg was willing to confront. He goes, no, if, you, if those who repeat history are doomed to repeat it. Like, we've got to learn from that episode. God, I'm so glad you mentioned Christopher Nolan because when you were talking about that director rat pack of the 70s yeah. and how people would say that about Spielberg, well, he can't be a serious director. His films are just commercial. Yeah. You directly see his influence 20, 30 years later with Christopher Nolan being able to do films like Dunkirk and inception that are huge movies commercially successful films yeah but have some substance to them as well yeah and that is is directly because of someone like steven spielberg's influence final thought francis for a good friend he goes he's like gershwin to me because gershwin can do concerto and f and he can also do a magical show tune that you're humming the rest of your night steven spielberg is george gershwin pretty good All right, you're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Special guest, Bedlines is with us, and even more special guests. The first Way time, more special. Two yeah. times now on Cinephile, Miles Teller is in the house. How are you doing, Miles? You're with, you're with your, your guest, Ben Lines, and your special guest, <laughs> Miles Big Movie Teller, which, again, that's just what you guys call me. <laughs> Miles Big Movie Teller from now on yeah. is actually your name around town. Yeah, I mean. I talked to Rasil yesterday, yeah. and he goes, hey, did you hear who's coming? And I said, who? He goes, Miles Big Movie Teller. Yeah, and he's he's big biceps, Rusillo. Dude, I wish you guys could see <laughs> Rusillo's, uh, whatever, work photo that he's got out there. He's just like, he did, I think he did a pump before. He's just like in a tight T-shirt, and he's looking at something, which I I, is, I guarantee you is not like a, a piece of food, but he's like savory. Right. In the, that's how, like, how I can describe it. See, that's a wasted resource like, for hungry. you, man, because your your bromance with Rosillo, you have not tapped into it for training for these movies. You're taking on these physical oh, roles. Bleed for this, you could have had Rosillo. Could have looked like wanted. Rosillo. If, if I'm doing like what's uh, that movie, Over the Top, <laughs> I need to like arm wrestle for custody of my kid, <laughs> you know, but... No, uh, most characters I play have core, yeah. so it's not it's not in Rusillo's. Uh, uh, first box. off, the last time you were here, we were talking about the celebrity softball because in San Diego you legged out an infield single, dude. Two of them, <laughs> two of them. But this time, my guy brought it. You went deep in your last at bat, and you you looked right at me. You go, hey, I got one. All right, Miles got one. He did go deep in celebrity softball. It's it's embarrassing <laughs> how seriously I take that. But it's like I don't know how else else to to play, man. I don't know. It's not a and literally, it's like I didn't smile. I think until I had a home run, and then even then, it was just like you know, act like you've been there before, kid. No, so true story. You blew but, us off for an interview because we were supposed to get Miles in the fourth inning, and I go, hey, is Miles around? They go, no, he blew us off. I go, what? And I go, that's not like him. Like he's a good dude. Afterwards, I asked him. I go, what did he specifically say? Like, hey, Miles, can we ESPN get you? And he goes, no, I'm good. And they go. No, he was running out to the field. And he yeah. goes, well, no, I can't right now. Like, I got to play the field. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. that's how seriously he's taking it. Well, I was this. like, dude, I'm not, I mean, I'm not in a, it's hard for me to just kind of join a league. And I love, I, I love that. Like, yeah. You just love celebrity sports. No, no, just, please get me, get me, basketball no, game. get me out of celebrity world, man. I just like, <laughs> and I just can't go and kind of like join a record. I guess I could, you know, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, 
Softball is not something you're just going to call 22 of your buddies and go exactly. play Exactly. Yeah. And organized and played on the professional field? Right. Like, come on, man. Jenny Fox, Jenny yeah. Finch. Like, it was, some, like, some it was a pretty loaded football. field. But I, yeah. I feel like baseball's your number one. It is, yeah. Right? You get a lot of buzz for being an Eagles fan when you come up here. Some people talk about your golf game. I don't know why. But you are a big... <laughs> Seriously. But you were really wait, wait, a, big, who, a big baseball who, fan. Who, That's his number who, one. Who exactly is talking about Miles' golf game? Uh, just... Miles. Miles is. Miles, big time movie golfer. Guy. Working, working, on the, working on the short game, yeah. But baseball's the number one. Yeah, baseball is one of those sports, right? To where if your dad if your dad was a baseball guy, then you're then you're gonna grow up with baseball. And if not, it's a hard game to just kinda it's not as entertaining, right? It's not as accessible, I think, as basketball and football. You can get it, but baseball, you know, it's thinking man's game and and but yeah, absolutely. That that was my uh, that was my sport. You know, he gets a lot of respect. You're seeing it during the World Series. All of a sudden, Tiger Woods is at Dodger Stadium. Where you been all year, dude? Justin Timberlake and Jessica Biel. Where, right. where you guys been? He's at this dude's out. It's the Phillies come to town. Three game set. He's there every the Dodgers. Night the Dodgers the give, give tickets, right? So if you're like a, you know a celebrity and you and you want tickets, they'll they'll score you some seats. My publicist like. They let they gave me tickets I think once and then after that she was like hey you know Miles would like tickets and the Dodgers said uh, literally I saw the email it's like we can't give Miles Teller tickets all he does is sit behind home plate wear wear Phillies gear and yell at people <laughs> even Ben was doing like a charity ping pong tournament and he wanted me to play with him and they said no I'm like blacklisted I to get him in the Kershaw charity like, ping pong thing because he loves charity no. sports and right. they're like no sorry is that real deal of Phillies hey fan? That's, that's that's what being a, a Philly fan is, man. I don't right. No, I got a buddy's a Yankee fan and they worst Dodger hat. He's like, oh, they're the Yankees of the West. Like, what? that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> what are you talking about? That literally makes zero sense, man. But Philly sports fan, as you're a big Eagles fan, yeah. it's never a situation where people are like, oh, I wish some more Philly fans were <laughs> coming to this bar. Or listen, at this I place, wish this yeah. bar were an Eagles no, we, bar. Well, I, listen, no. I don't say that about Giants fans. I definitely don't say that about Pats fans. Like, the Northeast is just, the fandom is, is, is secular. Yes. That's just how it is. Well, especially Ben's right here at ESPN because like, there's a ton of Eagles fans here. And we all started the season, we're like, eh, eight and eight. Maybe not. Yeah. Greeny was like 10 and six. Yeah. And now we're like, dude, best record in football. I know. Latest into a season since 04. Went for MVP. Like, I know. Are you as delusional as I now am? Because I'm like getting ready to look, go to Minnesota. When we started out 3 0 last year, I was not drinking that Kool Aid. You know, I figured right. once we, you know, dropped 3 and 3, I was like, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, where we are. And I just didn't. Uh, I don't know, but look, Wentz is the real deal. I absolutely did not expect us to have the best rush defense in the league. I didn't expect us to be top five rushing in the league. Right. Before preseason, everyone was talking about who's going to cover these Giants wide receivers. Yeah. And, like, get out of here, man. Our secondary without Darby out, like, our de- we have a defense again. Right. And that's, for me, in any sport, like, you want a defense. Fletcher Cox is a beast. The Fletcher Cox, yeah. Pressure, Losing Brandon. Hicks hurts. Yeah. You like Alshon Jeffrey as the number one receiver? Because those years with Donovan McNabb, until they got T.O., they never had that true number one well, receiver. Well, you're disrespecting Freddie Mitchell's game a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> it's Fred X. Uh, Kevin Curtis or uh, uh, was it it's Pinkston? or yeah. Pinkston. Yeah, Pinkston. Jason Avant. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jason Avant. Yeah. Later. A little later. You, you could not guard Jason Avant. But, yeah, but they never a, had the big wide receiver. Oh, yeah. They're dressing but, yeah. up Alshon Jeffrey as that guy. You like what you've seen so far. Uh, I do. I mean, you look at what he's doing for Aguilar, uh, and, you know, and, and Torrey Smith. Torrey Smith, I think he, he was just behind Deshaun Jackson for, uh, you know, uh, the average yards per catch or something. He's at like 20-something. But he's second in the league. Yeah. He wasn't really getting – to burn out in, in uh you know in San Francisco and seems pretty fresh and Ertz like Wentz he he just goes to whoever's open. I love Peterson. Yeah. Took us a while to get out from under the the Chip Kelly. Um, Stain. Yeah, exactly. 
It's funny, Doug Peterson, a lot of Eagles fans hate him because they go, oh, he's like Andy Reid. I'm like, last time I checked, Andy Reid had an unbelievable run of success. We average like 10 half wins a season under Andy Reid. Like, look at short yards, Andy Reid sucks. Yeah. Yeah. In my yeah, like mouth. Oh, they ran Andy Reid out of there. You know, that guy has a really good football like, coach. I love, I, I'm happy for Andy Reid. I'm always happy for guys that, you know, I like seeing DeMarco Murray play well. You know, we only had him for a little. LaShawn McCoy, real happy for him. Yep. Sean Jackson. He kind of punked me out one year at an SB party, went up to him, just tried to say what's up, and he just just literally was like, yeah, yeah, man, I'm talking. And uh, so whoa, whoa, what I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't mind saying that. He's not really my guy, but, you know, Macklin, um, you know, yeah, like seeing him do well, him come back the other night. It's all yeah. good. Yeah, you definitely wish them well. Miles Teller has two films out. I know we'll get to only the Brave in a second, but I know you're really passionate about thank you for your service. Yeah. And you've talked to that. You have a lot of military buddies. Yeah. I don't think it was growing up in Florida, but it's really something that you're passionate about is military service. Yeah, I mean, my, my grandpa was a Marine for a little bit. My uncle was a uh, first lieutenant in Vietnam and a Silver Star recipient. But, yeah, it was, I mean, because, look, it, you know, growing up in South Jersey, I grew up in Cape May, like, right by the beach. Like, there wasn't, you know, it was sk- surfer, skater, like, that kind of thing. Right. And uh, I moved to Florida, and I moved to a small, just heavily recruited uh, military town. And so a lot of my a lot of my buddies were military, and, you know, I'm, I'm make sure I'm there, the, the, you know, the, the day before they deploy, the night before they deploy, when they get back, I'm seeing them. And, it, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, I've always held held that uh, that occupation with just the highest amount of reverence, and I... You know, and now with this movie, it's dealing with, you know, these guys and men and women coming back. And it's just it's just crazy to me that we've been sending guys to war for men and women to war for forever. Uh, we still have no idea how to bring them home. You know, it's really uh, the amount of trauma and just what these guys are dealing with on a day to day basis. Like they're at war. They're at war. My Like the guy I played, he spent a thousand days in Iraq. You know, he's he's a staff sergeant. He like every day for 12, 15 months. Um, you know, you're just waiting to get blown up by an IED, basically, is what this kind of war has turned into for these guys. And it's uh, how you deal with that every day, and then you come home, and, and there's a few reintegration programs. They're nonprofit. Like, they work for a little bit, and and then they usually shut down. And, you know, and the VA is, is kind of doing its thing, but they're just overwhelmed. And there's a lot of bureaucratic red tape, and you have to – It's what's crazy to me is, like, so now – and it's not like these guys are – provided lawyers and it's like they have to prove so a lot of these guys are exposed to like a lot of burns you do a lot of burns over there just you know kind of getting you know getting rid of things and these guys are coming back like our first responders with lung cancer and all these crazy symptoms and they have to prove that they have to like go in front of the board and say i have lung cancer you know okay well how did you get it well i got it from this burn here okay can you prove that uh well yeah like is that not necess- like there's two different computer systems that operate from when you're over there and then when you come back and they don't know how- those systems don't communicate with each other that's a big problem like your file those things aren't connected so you have to go around and find like one dude had to get like a hundred signatures to prove that he was in this one battle or that he was this or that like my guy should have a purple heart they said it's highly he got a paperback it said it's highly unlikely that you would have uh, received this type of injury from from this battle. And it's just BS, man. And I and it, it's just so frustrating because that stuff's hard to do even with all of your without coming back from war. Let alone like here's a stack of papers and go talk to this therapist and have this signed off and all this. You need to be on the second floor. Not it's it's overwhelming. And uh, as civilians, we really don't understand it. So I'm hoping that that this movie just kind of brings uh you know brings some awareness. And the guy you play is a real guy. You have yeah. a good relationship with him. Yeah. He was on set. Adam he was, Schumann. He was part of your whole process. Well, at the premiere the other night, um, the woman who plays your wife 
said that she didn't meet the real life woman until that night. She didn't yeah. want her around. Sometimes people, actors, they want that real life person there for inspiration. Other times they don't. You've played real life guys a lot uh, over your career. Yeah. Uh, what is that process like for you getting to know the real people you play? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's great, man. If somebody's making a movie about your life, something something incredible had to happen. I mean, the percentage of people who will ever have a book written about them, a movie made about them, it's like, yeah, it's, 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 it's absurd. So... Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, it's it's very humbling. I think that the only difference in, in preparation is that I don't see that character as, as my own. I see it as a, as a marriage between, you know, me and the instincts and what I'm bringing to it personally. But look, I'm representing you. So I'm, uh, I'm open to everything. Uh, I want to be a sponge to everything. I want you to feel good about everything I'm doing. I would have felt really weird and manipulative if I were to do things in this movie to try for like vanity or for my performance that didn't sit right with Adam. You know, that's just not, that's not how I operate. And it's cool, man. I've gotten to really get inside the skin and the, the head and mind of some really extraordinary people. And to me, that's my, that's one of my favorite, if not my favorite part about this thing. I think I saw you on Jimmy Fallon last week and you were talking, this is an excellent point you make. Cause somebody hears Iraq where they go, well, I oppose the war. I'm not interested in it. Right. And your point is this, which is excellent. I don't care your politics are. I don't care if you're anti-war, if you're pro-war, whether you're not your hawk or dove. That is immaterial. What's important is that these people who are fellow Americans are in a terrible situation, yeah. and they are not being given a lifeline. I think that is so important that you articulate that to people. And there's – look, and they say, you know, the 1%, uh, you, know, the people, you know, people that are serving or, or veterans. But it's like there's uh, – no, there's 20 million veterans in the country. You multiply that by a family of four, and then you open that up to, you know, friends. It's like – and it's a little different, right? Because Vietnam, we, we had a draft, and these guys were coming home. People were yelling, baby killer, and all that stuff. But it still was spread out across the country. World War II, it's like our entire country went to war. They came back to ticker tape parades, and it was the baby boom. Like, that was, that was what was going on. And just as, uh, as we've went on now, they say, oh, it's a voluntary draft. But not really if you look at it. Like, socioeconomically, they're coming from almost like 60% are, are lower, low income. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an opportunity to, to make a living. And, uh, you know, if, if you're not afforded, you know, maybe like a, the college experience, if you can't afford whatever it is, and they're coming more and more from the same states. So a lot of people don't necessarily know somebody in this in coming back from this war. It's always like, oh, my uncle served, my grandfather served. But look, we've been in this war for 16 years. The amount of people that are coming back, um, you know, are messed up. But yeah, like Adam has this quote, look, everybody's green in the army. <laughs> it's weird that society works better over there than it does here. It doesn't matter your race, religion. Anything these they refer to each other as their brothers and their sisters, and it's all about that guy to the left and the guy to the right to you, and they would take a bullet for each other. And then we come back, they come back here, and the flag is so divisive, and it's frustrating. That's you know, and Nate Boyer just came out and said he's like, that's the most frustrating part, not the kneeling or the or the standing for the flag, but um, how how much hate and how much like divisiveness th- this whole thing has caused. We didn't fight for that. You know, we fought for you to be able to make the choice, not for you to hate somebody for making a choice. So has being a part of this film changed your perspective on all the stuff that's going on with the NFL this year and Colin Kaepernick? Yeah, I mean, look, and it's um, like everyone's got their thoughts on it. I'm just going to say like that, like the flag is going to represent something different to to everybody. Does it do um, do our military or they're fighting for our country? Absolutely. Does that flag just represent military? No. Do I have buddies that are in the service that that uh, care Kaepernick's kneeling? Yes. Do I have other guys that say we fall for him to make that choice? Yes. You know, so I don't know. Uh, to me, that country or the flag, though, it's about uh, it's about its population. We're all countrymen together. And I think that's the that's the most important. And we can't let this uh, 
let that get get in the way of it. And when it turns into, you know, and then it turns into a race thing, and it's like, look, it's, you know, these are all kind of, all these things are stigmatized and and, and taboo. We don't properly know how to how to speak about um, race in this country. We really don't. So. Um, Man, when you sign up for a movie, you sign up for all of this, right? It's like, you know, Adnan and I were saying in our profession, we can't sign up for something knowing that we're going to go into it. It's going to change our life, change our perspective. It's going to challenge us, scare us. I mean, there's a scene with you, a shotgun, and a car that I can't even imagine what you were thinking the night before, knowing that your next day of work, like, you had to go through that. For us, we don't have anything that's comparable. So what's that like to consciously say, you know what? I want to take all this on and walk into this for the next, you know, not just for the next short term, six months, but this is going to stay with you the rest of your career and the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, look, um, it's not certain, certain projects you can do. And, uh, you know, that's, you're legitimately having, you know, it's a lot of laughs, you know, and, and honestly, and even, even this movie with the subject matter, the cast got so incredibly close that it was, uh, you know, such a, a, a wonderful experience. But, yeah, you know, I don't know. I think that I've always kind of wanted to be, you know, champion the underdog. I've kind of this person that, you know, and these guys are, you know, they're, it's, it's an unsung story. It's a, it's a uh, you know, you want to give a voice to it. And I, like I said, I, if you're going to, you know, you want to go watch a movie and watch people shoot and smoke the cigarettes and, you know, and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, maybe take a second to see the effects of that, the effects that war is having on these guys. And so for me, there's... Uh, I don't mind lending myself to that. I don't mind, yeah, go like, like having to act a uh, potential, you know, suicide thing. Like you read that in the book, and then you just really because he feels like a failed father. He feels like a failed father, a failed husband. Like he's like, man, why can't I just figure this out? I can figure out the army. It's black and white, and now I can, now I can't do these things that I used to be able to do. And to me, that's just heartbreaking. Like to me, I just really feel for that. Uh, for that person, and I want to, you know, you just want to help tell their story. Thank you for your services, the film. I hope everyone goes and checks it out. How about the just the time of the fact you got two films coming out back to back weeks? Is that a, it's, it's not cool? I was about to say, yeah. is that a pain that because right there. Listen, you want to get the movie out so you're on junkets and stuff, or is it annoying because you're going? Well, yeah, I, I wish that both films are getting equal attention. Exactly. That's yeah. You hit the nail on the head. I don't. I don't think that they should be like, you know, competing against each other. I think both. I don't even like. You know, with the talk shows, it gets split up. They ask, you know, and we'll talk about both films and stuff, and each one deserves its uh, right. its its stage, you know. And so I don't know. Uh, I don't know, but look, as an actor, there's so many things that happen after you walk off set that just have nothing to do with you. Like, you perform and you're a collaborator, and then, you know, there's a bunch of people sitting in a room editing it, and you're not a part of that process. And then they market it, you're not a part of that process. So that, I guess what that's why you see actors as they go on, you know, want to become producers and want to become, uh, you know, directors, right? Because we all, you know, we fall in love with the story as as the actor. And we're a big part of it, but the finished product, we actually are uh, a very very small part of. See yourself taking on more sports stories, and we can come up here and talk sports all day long. And I know yeah. it's a big reason why you love coming up here, but. You've done it once with Bleed for This, and then other yeah. than that, well, you played a baseball player, I guess, technically. In Project, Project X. X. <laughs> <laughs> you did. Yeah, and inferred, because you never actually saw me. Oh, so you swing a bat. Saw me do it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so you've technically yeah, played man. an athlete That's twice right. now. But instead of hitting a baseball, I was hitting a lawn gnome filled with ecstasy. But look, <laughs> slow pitch softball, what are you doing? Why do Why don't you uh, get presented with more sports stories? Maybe you do, and you just haven't found the right ones. There's, I haven't found, I haven't found too many. I, uh, I don't know. I, I, they're, they're, they're tough, right? I, I, 
What are your favorite ones just as a fan? Um, Bull Durham, Hoosiers, the trash can pick and field goal kicking Philadelphia Eagle phenomenon with Tony Danza. <laughs> invincible, I would assume. Yeah, Vince Invincible. Vince Vince yeah, Greg Kinnear's dick for me. I'm just crying the whole time. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I think baseball lends itself nicely because, look, for half the game, you know, half the team's in the dugout. You know, and you got all those all those guys together, and it's uh, you know it's a slower paced game, and you can actually it, it affords conversation stuff. It's hard to you know for a basketball. Oh, Eddie was a great one. <laughs> like Knicks. Mike, the only way the Knicks are going to win Knicks. is in the movies. Unfortunately, yeah. Frank Langella rides a horse in that movie as well. <laughs> I wore this you know white man can't jump sweatshirt today, and he walked in and he was like, "Oh, they're talking about me and Michael B. Maybe doing something to remake." Nice. Is that how you kind of look at? Projects, you call your friends. You say, "Hey, maybe we could take that on." I mean, you got a nice I mean, Mike's kind of my Mike's kind of my running mate. You know what I mean? Me and Mike have worked together, and we just have a really good. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have a friendship, and then also, uh, yeah, I think we we gravitate towards similar things in this in this business. It's just good to have like, if you guys know Mike, he's just like the most down to earth, family oriented, just like give you the shirt off his back kind of guy. And also, I think because we both came from a sports background. I don't know. We I don't know. I think we go into it with a certain mindset. I think when we're working on a working on a project, I feel like you're at these like Hollywood like fashion dinners, and you're like running to the bar to go watch the game. And you're like, oh, somebody else here who actually. No, I'm there for the fashion, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> you actually loves a solid you colored suit. Oh, like okay. a nice solid, like a, like That's a very powerful. Clean what, are you, yeah. what are you wearing? Like mismatch? Like nice, what do you mean like, solid no, color? Like monochrome? Nice, like, a, like a magenta? Monochrome. Well, you got to grow you know up at some mean? point, Ben. We can't all just wear hoodies to work. <laughs> What I want to know is what what kind of project can we get from Miles where he can torment J.K. Simmons? Like when can he get the revenge for all the whiplash? Like because he, he got to humiliate you and he Jake, boasts about it. J.K. Yeah. Bowie's like, yeah, I tormented that. J.K. tormented himself for the first twenty years of his career. So uh... he's like at the end of his life in a retirement home, and Miles yeah, exactly. is the young guy in the home who has yeah. to like clean his drool and all that. Or, or we need right. to get Miles old enough to play like Mike Schmidt, like one of your Phillies iconic. Oh my god! <laughs> you imagine that would Bartender be the dream role? Jack. Bartender Jack. No, I'm gonna play Dalton. Yeah. Darren Dalton's <laughs> Darren Darren Dalton's my guy. guy. I just remember as a kid being like, "That's a man. He's uh, tan. He's got the the curls, and he like I don't even know what he's put in his hair, but it's got like a nice oily kind of <laughs> essence to it." Like, number ten's my number because of because of guy. Dalton and and uh, rest in peace, man. That was my guy. You there, still find yourself in situations where you have to have a number. You're like that's my number. I'm number ten. Celebrity like, softball celebrity. game, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Wi-Fi yeah. passwords, <laughs> right? Just tell people a little bit more about only the brave, though, because I feel like that did get a little short shrift. Yeah, no, great cast. I felt like. Uh, I don't know. Obviously, the reviews are out at this point. I I really think Rotten Tomatoes is a way to evaluate a movie, but you know it's a ninety percent on there. Uh, take that for what it's worth. I don't care, but it's uh, it's just a really great. <laughs> Hold on, challenge flag of the field. What? That's fantastic. To on the website and be like, yeah, it's ninety percent. No, it's Nobody's... like and Martin Scorsese just did yeah. this whole thing on yeah. it, and it's like yeah. I agree. It's like we're 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 like judging these, rating these movies like it's a washing machine, like it's a consumer report. Right. It's not, man. So I don't know. It's to me, it's not about like here's what every you know. Look, a lot of these film, a lot of these journalists, they were not film majors. You know, they were just journalism majors who ended up like going in there, whatever it is, and and it's fine. But you shouldn't base a movie on like, oh, that's like a C plus. That's right. probably not good. Uh, maybe that means like sixty percent of people. For six percent people, that might be their favorite movie, man. Right. Anyway, um, it's very subjective. All art is subjective. Eagles are six and one. Happy thoughts. Happy thoughts. <laughs> so only the brave. Yeah, it's like Josh Brolin, Jennifer Conley, uh, James Badgedale, Jeff Bridges, um, you know Taylor Kitsch, 
And yeah, it's a movie about the you know the wildland firefighters. Their their job is called hot shots. It's a position that I think that very few people know about. I didn't know about it. And yeah, first responders, man, they don't make them any better. And four years ago, nineteen of the twenty firefighters, spoiler, um, got in a bad situation. And uh, yeah, but it's an incredible story. It's incredibly well made. Joseph Kaczynski directed it, who did uh, Tron and Oblivion. And then we have Claudio Moranis, our DP, who did Benjamin Button, Life of Pi. It's a beautifully shot movie, beautifully well acted. And yeah, you'll laugh, cry. Um, ben, I don't know your emotional range. You just, what do you, you'll chuckle and. You'll probably be texting. Yeah, you'll probably be texting. Texting a final moment. Do you do DraftKings? Yeah. Are you, do, I'm do, with Cal- I don't play do against it. Kellerman and Marcellus and all It's a guys. day, to, it's a weekly thing. Yeah, it's weekly. And you, pick and you a can new line up each week. You know, like you would dra- you'd play fantasy when you're a kid and you draft Des Bryant. He breaks his foot in week two, and you're like, all right, well, my league screwed. For when the I was a kid, year. I'm 30 years old, dude. Yeah, so I was de- drafting Des Bryant as a, <laughs> as a beer drinking adult. You were drafting How old Alvin you, Harper, man. When you were, you know, when you're a kid, and you're drafting Kareem Hunt, and like no Alvin Harper when you were eight drafting. Yeah. Him. Anyway, <laughs> I can't you don't know how to draft kings. You come in, Fred Barnett. Do it every week. You so can you set up where it's like, okay, these are my guys, and then everyone puts into the kitty, and then yeah. You see, that's, yeah. It's good. I, yeah, I'll do that. Um, I lost my train of thought, but I was going to ask you um, about. Fantasy is also no, when ruining, like, being a sports fan. Well, when you're on set for yeah. a movie like that, and you hear all the names you mentioned, right? Yeah. Josh Brolin, Jennifer Connelly. It's almost like you hear a rookie in the NBA say, oh, my God, I was on the court with Jamal Crawford. I was on the court with, you know, Carmelo Anthony. Do you have those moments still? I know you've been doing this for 10 <laughs> years, but you have these moments where you're like, oh, I'm on set with. And you kind of have an out of body or a little starstruck. Or That's the first like, Carmelo Anthony. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, the Jamal Crawford was uh, a little the Jamal like, Crawford. Who's, who's getting excited around Jamal Crawford? What? Like Miles, like all right. Well, no, you're 19 years old. And you're playing against the Benjamin so what, Button of basketball, for, Jamal Crawford. For the acting world, who's the Jamal Crawford of actors? Josh Brolin. Here's this interview. He's going to be Crawford. Jamal Crawford's top ten all time in three pointers. Brolin was in Goonies, and he's been doing it ever since. Jamal Crawford. Academy three Award decades. nominated. He was in no country for old men. Jamal Crawford's the only player to win the six-man award man, multiple dude. times. Yeah, Brolin's, if Brolin hears You can this, cast Brolin in a- any movie and then just cast around him. That guy yeah. is so solid. Awesome. You, if, He's if, not coming off the bench, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Yeah. That's Jamal Crawford's like a sixth man. Like, that's, that's a fact. <laughs> but anyway, to answer your question, I guess I'll use some other references in my head. Uh, yeah, no, that's how I felt from, like, for me, you know, coming out of college, uh, <laughs> playing acting at NYU, coming out of college, I was, yeah, I mean, the first movie I did was with Nicole Kidman and Aaron Eckhart, and, you know, you go from just only acting with people your own age in high school and in college, and then now I'm doing a scene with Nicole Kidman. And that's, you know, that's what it, yeah, I did, I absolutely, but you still, you still, you know, I met Bridges and Jennifer Conley and Brolin, like all those guys, man, you, for that, like, I grew, you grew up watching them, so absolutely, you do get that, uh, you know, you're not starstruck, you're just excited that you're now in a position where you can meet these people as, like, your teammates, you know, as, as, you, as kind of like in a, like a collaborator or a scene partner, you know, no, no person's more, imper- not one actor's more important in a scene, you know, it's, it's two people, so... You're great with knowing the whole vibe of this. The junkets, you got to promote the film, got to be fun. Yeah. Tell me about Sundance. What that experience like for you? The first Sundance, Sundance is great. It's uh, it's really t- it's uh, you'll. Uh, uh, I had one of the worst hangovers of my life at Sundance because the altitude. Like, be oh, careful. The altitude. Be the careful altitude. with that. Uh, but no, Sundance is great. What's what's really unique about that film festival is because it's so cold up there. 
but it's the first festival of the year. So you have people standing outside in the snow, freezing just for an opportunity to see a movie first. So that just, and that feeds the whole festival. Like, you know, um, that's, uh, I know Ben's going, going up there to, you know, uh, you know, see some snow bunnies or whatever no, 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 it is. He, like, he, drink, wants to, oh. he wants to support independent film. No, he doesn't. He I wants to wear the fur and drink I a hot chocolate. And, snow bunny. You know she's I mean? my wife and she's from Park City. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, oh, but so, Miles is getting married, wow, by the way. Congrats on the yeah, I am, I am, I am. Congrats on that. Thank hold you. her hand the whole time. The whole wedding, hold her hand. That's my only advice. Okay. And David Jacoby told me that something will go wrong. Something's oh, going to go wrong. Right. Just recognize it and move on and you'll be fine. When's the day? My suit yeah. game will be on point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Monochromatic yeah. suit. Did you wear a hoodie to your wedding? <laughs> Did you wear high-top Nikes? No, it wasn't one of those. Like, I got to get married in Jordans. Like, no, I don't need When is the that. day, and can Rosillo, is Rosillo invited? Is I wanna, if Rosillo has pictures of Miles Teller's I mean, wedding. unless it's a beach wedding, he's going to have to wear sleeves. So I don't know. I don't know if he has the wardrobe for it. <laughs> Adnan mentioned Whiplash, which was a Sundance movie. Spectacular yeah. Now is also a Sundance movie. was a Sundance movie. movie, and I think, I don't remember. No, never mind. Rabbit Hole was, was Toronto. So when a movie like, I mean, Whiplash premiered at Sundance, and then it goes on for 14 months and gets the Best Picture nomination. Yeah. Spectacular Now goes off at, at Sundance, and then A24 picks it up and becomes a big hit. Talk to me just about that feeling of once the movie is shown at Sundance and how that is able to then catapult it throughout the rest of the year. Yeah, it can. I mean, it was funny for Whiplash. We were the opening night film, which I didn't realize a, a lot of the time it's not, you know, they don't they're not putting necessarily the, the strongest film first. It's, you know, uh, it's, it's whatever. But, uh, but yeah, it's great. I think what's what's nice about it is like, for, you know, when you do these movies, you know, you finish them, and then there's like a premiere, and you get to see everybody again. But and then and then that's kind of it. Maybe a little bit during press. But when you have a film that's able to start at Sundance and then keeps going, it just kind of keeps it keeps the momentum going, and uh, you get to see everybody again. But it's it's tough to start a film in January that people are still talking about a year later. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of films kind of come out for awards, come out at the end of the year, and then ride that you know month or two wave right into the into the awards thing. But yeah, Sundance is great. But spectacular have you guys, now have you guys, have you guys been up there? No, we're looking to get up I there. Mean, looking, looking to get up there. Yeah. Looking to get up there. Yeah. Well, hopefully, we'll make the trip yeah. next year. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for the um, in. Shailene, you guys have a fun friendship. You guys yeah. talking about working together again on anything? Yeah, we do. I mean, we're always kind of, I think Shailene's just always going to be somebody that if, uh, you know, if I'm attached to something first and there's a, a part that I think she can play, which is a lot of different things, I think that we, we really work well together. And she's, uh, she's uh, yeah, a great person. And, uh, yeah, so absolutely. I'm always looking out for, for something to do with her. Yeah, I like these ideas of these guys collaborating and having relationships and saying, oh, we should go after and do another rom-com or we should go after something. Spectacular Now is my movie, man. I Thanks, love that. Thanks, man. Yeah, that's awesome. Miles Thanks. Teller, thank you for your service. Thank you for your time coming to ESPN. Best of luck, man. For sure. And joining us now in Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast, is the director of My Friend Dahmer. His name is Mark Myers. Thank you so much for coming on today, Mark. We really appreciate it. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. So I saw the film, and uh, like many, I know you know the basic aspects of uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's life, or at least as much as I would like to know. You know, prior to seeing your film, I'm I'm aware of all the uh, sensational aspects of his murders and the cannibalism and all the rest of it from Wisconsin, et cetera. But this is the greatness of your movie: is that I get to see what Jeffrey Dahmer was before, obviously, he became this infamous killer, and. I get to have some methods of sympathy for him, or at least to appreciate the sensitivity with which you approach that story um, without glamorizing it, of course. You're humanizing it. You're telling the story of a person, 
uh, before he became somebody that we were all notorious with. How did you approach that in terms of, of working with the actor Ross Lynch and adapting the material? Well, right. So first thing I did was adapt the material. I found the book very early on um, before it actually was on bookshelves. My Friend Dahmer is a graphic novel written by Dirk Factor, who's a guy who did grow up with Jeff Dahmer in in junior high and high school. They they were went to the same schools. They had they shared a lot of the same friends. And so this sort of story years later falls in his lap where the whole his whole childhood and his high school experience has a whole other lens to it because of who his friend Jeff Dahmer became. So uh, there's this nonfiction text that I started with. And from there, um, you know, I realized I was making something that a lot of true crime fans and other people fascinated with, you know, the darker edges of our psyche. Um are are just that's what this movie is sort of tapping into but at the same time it's a high school film so i was casting young actors who were you know between the ages of 16 and you know 21 to work as professionals in this film and so ross was um one of over a uh, hundred actors that i might have uh, met with through meetings and then narrowed it down to some auditions but when i met him i locked into him and had a a real immediate sense that he would be the perfect guy to carry this film as the lead role. Yeah, I'm unaware of Ross's work. I'm aware of the fact he's a big star on the Disney Channel and such, and so this is a huge departure for him, and I thought he was terrific, just kind of nailing the fact this guy's just so off-kilter. What was it like uh, for him to approach this material? I, I imagine for a lot of actors, Mark, they're eager to kind of break out their shell and try something against type. Was Ross the same way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like anyone else that, you know, of that age, the, his fans and himself, they're all growing up. At a certain point, they're hitting twenty twenty one, and their interest is in, in, in uh, more, you know, worldly or controversial material that they may be reading, music they may be listening to, and they're growing out of Disney. And so as an actor himself, um, he was just looking for an independent film that would challenge him, and so the timing was right. I mean, it feels uh, just perfect and and like all things worked in a, in a magical way that we were able to unite because he inhabits this role in a way beyond anyone i think ever could have anticipated you know he puts those glasses on and and he has the same sort of appearance as as, as the real jeff but he's also an incredibly talented young man he was originally trained as a, as a young uh, boy as a dancer so i knew that he had the physicality too. He could sort of take on the gait and the posture of the real Jeff, and and then we are off to the races. And and he's done sort of a great job. But for him, you know, I just think it was just an unnatural way of ex- expressing himself as an actor is to inhabit this this role. What I liked best about your film, Mark, along with Ross's performance, was the way that you, as the writer and director, were able to capture that unsettling tone. You know, there's always this feeling that Jeff's going to do something, especially late in the picture. You know, the one scene where he's talking to his friend and his friend just gets the heebie-jeebies and says, i got to get out of here. Because he can just tell that Jeff's got some tendencies or some thoughts that he doesn't want to be a part of. How were you able to kind of convey that sense of tone? You know, it's a mix because half of, uh, for a lot of the movie, honestly, we were filming uh, for the first you know week or so of filming were all the scenes in the, in the actual high school. And everyone was... We we originally felt like we were making a high school movie because that was the intention because that's what it is, 
But underneath that, we knew that there was something creepy that was brewing underneath the surface of this main character, something that the other kids didn't sense themselves or know about their friend. And so you're mixing sort of a high school movie with this other sort of creepy or sinister thing that is, you know, is burgeoning underneath. And that has a lot to do with how you use the camera and where we place it and just kind of give it a little bit of an, of an eerie feel. Someone who's a real cinemaphile might notice that there's a slow creeping zoom that, uh, or push in rather that's happening on a lot of scenes in it, even if just two people are standing in a stationary position. So there's this sort of other eerie thing that's lurking around the frames of the image while you're, you know, watching a couple kids tell a, an off kilter high school joke at a, at a, you know, at a cafeteria table. And you're right in terms of you're, you're trying to convey high school, which for so many of us is, uh, like you said, a time of transition and it's awkward and it's frustrating and everyone's insecure and neurotic and try to pretend to be somebody that they're not. And so a part of me while I'm watching it, I'm like, well, you know, Jeff Dahmer's like so many other kids that age and maybe a lot like I was at that age, just this adolescent doesn't really seem to fit in and doesn't really have uh, the right approach to, to being popular. But then I see him playing with dead animals and the fact that his dad's even just, you know, thrown off by this and taken aback by the fact he knows his son is different. Um, and I, I, I loved his parents because I just thought that, that that's an interest. I, I, you know, people never look at these stories. Like you said, those who love true crime stories, sometimes they focus on the, you know, the glorification aspect of it and sensationalizing the stories. But this is a real human being. Like, I, I've got kids. Like, I'm wondering what it's like for me if I'm a dad and I see my son and he's kind of got some weird behaviors. How did you um, convey those types of emotions with the actors playing his family? Well, that was a really important added aspect that I, I, I developed further than the book could provide, which is sort of the home life. And it just, I felt like balanced out so that you understood how he as a character was moving between high school and home. And the, the advice that he might be getting from his father, though genuine, was kind of wrong or he wasn't fully able to um, understand what might be brewing in his in his son's head and not be able to communicate with him. And then he takes that advice and he changes that into how he a- acts weird in high school. So I was balancing these two worlds and just trying to capture sort of a, a family life and a marriage that's dissolving and these this the married couple that they, they may be both good people, but together they just can't make it work. And that kind of collision of emotions and animosity and just disagreement that some marriages are faced with, be financial or just emotional, you know, here is a main character who is wired wrong and he's in that environment. So that just the mixture of all of that chaos um, is both familiar and also disturbing. No question about it. How do you think um, people are going to respond to the story? The danger now becomes, like I said, there's those who love true crime stories and you know, I think to do with serial killers, they find the subject matter fascinating. And those who are going to say, why are you humanizing Jeffrey Dahmer? Like this, this guy's a monster. Nobody wants to understand him or have sympathy for him or anything like that. What, what is your response to those types of sentiments? Well, this is a cautionary tale, and there are uh, troubled kids all the time that slip through the cracks. So it's a relevant story today. So it's not that he – I'm humanizing someone because he was human, and he was a guy that went on the school bus, had homework, had parents that were, that were feuding but also loved him, and, and, and he also had friends and friends he couldn't hold on to because his sanity was – was eating away at him and he was devolving into a monster. And you're watching that entire 
um, disintegration of his, of his humanity on screen. But rather than just like look at the monster, you're there. Everyone was once a human being, and so you're watching him turn into someone who we know will become evil. And I think that that's relevant today. There are kids that are troubled or misunderstood, and if we just have a better sense of 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 how we can miss the signs, maybe we won't let you know another troubled kid slip through the cracks. Uh, that's very well said. Where can people find my friend Dahmer? I know with independent films, Mark, it's tough to get mass distribution, so I want to make sure people see this film. Where can they see it? Well, thanks for asking. So it's been we premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in April, and we've been sharing it at film festivals around the world ever since, but it's going to open in theaters in New York and L.A. on November 3rd. And then on the following weekend, it'll be in a whole range of other cities. So um, my friend Dahmer is the social media handle, you know, on, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And then on top of it, FilmRise is our distributor. But through Facebook, you can surely dig your way through and find all the other cities um, through the FilmRise website that it's playing at starting from our weekend. But what's really most important is that people in New York and L.A. come out that first weekend and see what I think is really a special film. No question. Like so many small films, you're right. If it opens well in those major markets, then all of a sudden it gets more distribution from there. Congrats on a terrific film. Mark Myers, the writer-director of My Friend Dahmer. Thanks so much for the time today on Cinephile. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed talking to you. A Scorsese Story. Once again, terrific guest today, Mark Myers, the writer-director of My Friend Dahmer, Miles Teller, terrific, and, of course, Ben Lyons stopping by as well. Now that they've all cleared out of here, I can talk about Martin Scorsese. And as I said at the top of the podcast, why I think Age of Innocence is one of his most boldest and riskiest films, this was coming off of Goodfellas. Now, Goodfellas was not a box office draw, but obviously achieved great fanfare on home video, uh, celebrated by the Oscars with all the nominations, only Pesci, of course, winning for... um, Supporting actor, although Marty should have won and Best Picture should have won. But my point is, you're coming off of Goodfellas, and you're picturing right, more of the same. At this point now, he's Martin Scorsese. He is director of Mean Streets, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas. You know what I want to do? I want to make a costume drama. It's like, what? And Jake Cox, who's Marty's longtime friend, had given him the Edith Wharton novel, The Age of Innocence, back in 1980. And he said, Marty, when you're going to make your costume drama... When you're going to make your epic romance, this is the one that you're going to make, because this one is you. And Marty didn't get around to reading it until 1985 after he was doing After Hours. And he read it, and he said, no, you're you're right, Jay. The the exquisite romantic pain of this is something that I can relate to. That's something I want to do, but it has to be the right time. So after making Goodfellas, a movie which starts with Billy Batts getting stabbed in the trunk of a car, he now makes a Victorian-era drama set in 1870s New York, upper-class society, there's nary a bullet, there's nary a gun, there's nary a gangster. Instead, it's Daniel Day-Lewis, stiff, rigid, restrained. I mean, it's so a polar opposite later when you see Daniel Day-Lewis in Gangs in New York where he's so unrestrained and so flamboyant. Here, he's just so inward and suppressed. And the story, for those that don't know, and I've never read The Age of Innocence until I'd seen the movie, then I read the book. But Newland Archer is this guy, uh, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, who was engaged to be married to his cousin, May Wellen, played by Winona Ryder. So the movie starts out, they're at the opera, enjoying it, blah, blah, blah. And then he meets Countess Olenska, who is Winona Ryder's cousin, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. And there's a big topic of scandal and gossip because she just got divorced. Or she's trying to get divorced, I should say. Her and her husband are estranged. She's was married to the Count out, out there in France. She's now in America. So the seeds are set here. And there's a narrator played by Joanne Woodward. Joanne Woodward, of course, uh, Paul Newman's longtime wife. 
And Marty said, I wanted to have a narrator who's not a character in the movie. I just wanted her to be the voice of society. She is New York in 1870s. Nobody ever actually identifies who it is. It's just this voice. So she's explaining all the customs. And there's shot after shot, close-ups of the china, close-ups of the food. Here's the set decoration. Here's the decor. And Marty, for a guy who has this reputation for being so streetwise, you know, his dad, who he dedicated the film to, was a garment designer, worked in the garment business. So whenever they ask Marty about it, like, you know, he asked people that work with him, his longtime collaborator, Sandy Powell, and says, oh, Marty loves clothes. Like, he loved going through all the clothes of all the characters back in 1870 for this movie. So the seeds get set, and you quickly realize that Newland Archer, Daniel Day Lewis, is engaged to Mary Monroe Ryder, and he may outwardly say he's in love with her, but the emotions are not as strong, and then the emotions start bubbling towards Michelle Pfeiffer, who, of course, is this, uh, you know, forbidden woman, she's disgraced, etc., and the movie has this slow build if you know how they're starting this emotion because literally Newland is there to help the countess. He's a lawyer. So when she's seeking a divorce, she's actually looking at Newland for help. So Danny Day Lewis is under the guise of positive family relations. He's just helping out his wife's cousin. But you can start to tell that there's some emotion there bubbling underneath the surface. And eventually he puts his hand on the cards, and, and now you can tell they start to have feelings for each other. And this is one of the great. Uh, bits of dialogue ever in a Scorsese film, what Michelle Pfeiffer says to him after he you know, basically shows his emotion for her. She says, Newland, you couldn't be happy if it meant being cruel. If we act any other way, I'll be making you act against what I love in you most. Don't you see I can't love you unless I give you up? And his response is nothing is done that cannot be undone, meaning I can break off my engagement to an owner rider here. And we, but, she, but she knows because she's already disgraced having left the count that... They just can't do it. And in this society, you have to conform. And that's where Age of Innocence is a very Scorsese-type film because of all of his films, it's about society and the tribe and the way the tribal regulations are. And if you step out of line, you get whacked. Same thing with Age of Innocence. You step out of line, you get ostracized. You're not going to be allowed to be a part of the family. You get cast aside. And for you know so many films he's made about loners and outcasts and people down to luck this actually fits within his ethos even though on the base level you say scorsese costume drama what are we doing quentin tarantino in fact was asked at the time this is 1993 so qt was coming off of reservoir dogs he was about to make pulp fiction he goes hey are you going to make a, a costume drama like scorsese one day he's like what like no like only marty would have these types of aspirations like i i'm just here for the guns and the violence and i do what tarantino does he goes i i could never do what marty does he goes, I, I know he loves Kubrick. Maybe this is his version of Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. He's showing he can do that. And, in fact, Marty gives himself a cameo, you know, very much like Hitchcock used to do. Scorsese shows up as a photographer at one point. But, you know, ultimately he realizes in the story it's less trouble to conform. And even as he says to the Countess, our legislation accepts divorce, but our social customs do not. And, you know, eventually she becomes for him the most plaintive and poignant in a line of ghosts. And for a movie which is so restrained and everybody can't really reveal their emotions, when, when Newland Archer actually explains who he is, it's devastating. You know, he, he says this to the Countess late in the film, this whole story of forbidden love. You gave me my first glimpse of a real life, and then you told me to carry on with a false one. And later the narrator, Joanne Woodward, says he was the prisoner in the center of an armed camp. So the whole story is building up, right? Obviously he cannot be with her even though he's in love with her. He starts making plans. This is so well done. Late in the film, he, he's getting desperate, right? Every, every one of us, you know, you know when a young man's in love, he's got no other chance. Now he's just going to every recourse possible. And he tells Maywell, another writer, that he's going to go to Washington. He's going to fight this patent course. And the reason he's doing it is because the countess is there, Michelle Pfeiffer. 
So afterwards, he finds out that Pfeiffer's not going to be there. And he tells me to a writer, he goes, oh, that patent case I was going to go to Washington for, that was delayed. And she goes, oh, really? Well, I was talking to one of your partners. He said the case is still on. And he said, and it's, <laughs> his face like, uh-huh. She goes, he goes, yeah, but yeah, but it's been delayed. Like, I'm my partner. She goes, oh, so the case was not delayed. He's like, no, but my going was. And it's like, okay, like, you can already see now that Maywellen maybe isn't as naive as Newland thinks she is and as we, the audience, thinks she is. And it really builds up to the end of it where the Countess is just adamant. They cannot be together, even though she's in love with Newland as well. And they have this scene. This is like one of the most erotic mo- scenes in a Scorsese film. And they might as well be naked in a carriage. And all it is is he's unbuttoning her glove. Like, I've never seen a movie with more close-ups of a glove and of a hand and how it's seductive. Just the fact that he just unbuttons her glove and holds her hand, and they start kissing in a carriage. In 1870s New York, this was like the height of scandal, the fact that these two are doing this. And now it's like this illicit affair. But eventually he comes to terms with the fact that he's going to tell May what's up. He was the prisoner in the center of an armed camp, as the narrator says. So May comes in the room, it's in their house, and it's a wide shot. And you just see what a gulf, what a distance it is between these two characters. Because normally when Scorsese shoots interiors, he's not shooting it wide. But it's purposely wide when you see Winona Ryder's character and Dan DeLuce's character. And they start talking. And at one point he says, you know, May, what I want to tell you was about myself the way I am. And there's a cutaway of ashes falling in a fire. Like the, the symbolism is right on the nose. You know, this guy is now falling apart. And this shot is so great. And I hadn't seen The Age of Innocence in a while, as much as I love the picture. But I hadn't seen this shot in so long. It's a close-up of when Winona Ryder stands up. So think about this. For two hours, Newland Archer has deliberated in telling his wife he's in love with her cousin. And now he's going to tell her. This is the moment of truth. He said, May, I've had this feeling about myself. I want you to tell me about myself. Okay, here it is. And what does Marty do? Shoots the wide shot, wide golf, and they both sit down, wide shot, and then he goes close up, and he shoots the close up in three different frames, 24 frames, 36 frames, 48 frames of her getting up. And as he explained, he'll never forget that feeling for the rest of his life. When May stands up, she now asserts control. She now has the upper hand. And she tells him the countess has left. And you see Newland's face. He's like, come again? And she's like, yeah, I'm, you know, she, she already left this morning. Like, you can't reach her. There's nothing gone. He's, and he's, he's baffled. And she goes, well, this is the thing. I told her two weeks ago that I was expecting. And now you see Newland's face is, is just, honestly, just got hit in the face with a sledgehammer. He's like, what? And she's like, I thought you just found out today that you're pregnant because she just revealed that to him. And she says, yeah, but, but I was right. And I'm like, what a cold scene of emotional betrayal. May well, but on a writer, knew all along that Daniel Day-Lewis, her husband, is in love with her cousin. So in order to separate them, she uses the biggest trump card that she has, which is tell her husband that she's pregnant, even though she wasn't pregnant. And what she does is she tells his adulteress first. She tells Michelle Pfeiffer first, knowing any woman in good conscience is now going to realize this madness must stop. This illicit love affair must no longer go on. And that's why the Countess is going to leave. And now... She's used that trump card, and she actually is pregnant two weeks later. Checkmate. Love affair, doomed, forgotten. It moves on. The prisoner then explains, uh, excuse me, the voice then explains to Ann Woodward that Newland became a loyal husband, very devoted, and, and life goes off from that. They raised three beautiful kids together, and later on, May passes away. So then his eldest son gives him a call. Dad, let's go to Europe before I get married. Okay, great. And while they're there walking the streets in Paris, 
He says, we're going to go see the Countess Alenska. Now, it's been like 40 years. Danny Day-Lewis has like the heavy old man makeup now. Like he's in his 70s. And he's like, wait, what was that? The son's played by Robert Sean Leonard. He was in Dead Poet Society. And he's like, yeah, Dad, we're going to go see the Countess. And he's like, uh, he just basically makes it clear that that's not going to happen. And he says, you know, Mom always said that she knew we would be in good hands with you. And he said, because once she asked you to give up the thing you wanted most, and, you know, you did that for the sake of your family. And Daniel Day-Lewis just kind of takes that in and just says, she never asked. She never asked and walks away. And then the narration is that the fact that his wife knew the thing that he coveted the most in his life, this love of this other woman, is the fact that his wife knew that but pitied him for the fact that he never got to achieve his personal fulfillment, moved him inexpressibly. And he goes to the last, and it's a beautiful last scene. His son says, to right, the countess is upstairs. Let's take the elevator. And he goes, no, no, it's okay. I'm just going to sit here. You go ahead. And he goes, what am I supposed to tell the countess? That you're old-fashioned, that you insist walking up three flights of stairs? And he looks at his son, heavy sign, and goes, just tell her I'm old-fashioned. That'll be enough. And he looks up, and there's a great striking shot of the window, and he, he goes back to this image of seeing Michelle Pfeiffer back in his youth, and he remembers her being so beautiful, and he walks away. So the f- movie is just heartbreakingly poignant. It was made $32 million. It was made for $32 million. Sorry, made for $34 million, only made $32 million. And Scorsese, as he said, he goes, listen, first of all, audiences were like, they see my name in costume drama. They just, it, my fan base wasn't sure what to do. Obviously, guys like me are going to go see it in love with them. But like the average person's like, what? what no, you just made Goodfellas. Now you're making Age of Innocence. Okay, I'll pass on this one. Let me know when you get back to the gangsters, which he did because Casino was actually his next movie. And he said then for the art house audiences, they went and saw it and they liked it. Thought it was very good. But they said, well, it just doesn't feel like a Scorsese film. And then Jay Cox, the screenwriter, goes, you know, it's not all that stuff. You know what the problem is? Because audiences went and saw that movie and go, all right, so this guy's engaged to his cousin, and he's in love with another woman, and they never get together? Why am I watching this movie? <laughs> because, because they never forgave him for the fact Michelle Pfeiffer and Dan DeLuis never actually get together. And Marty's like, but that's the point of the whole thing. Like, Michael Bauhaus, the cinematographer, said at the end, he goes, why can't Newlin just go up there? Why can't he go see the Countess? And Marty goes, this is the guy's whole life. His whole life is his integrity. The fact that he would not sacrifice his family for the love of his life. He can't all of a sudden forget that now and go up and say hi to her 40 years later. Nice to see you again. How you been? I've got three kids now. Yeah, I've sacrificed my whole life. I'm miserable. So it's funny how some of these things work out, but um, I think it's a really overlooked film. I hope people check out The Age of Innocence. You can read the book as well. Maybe you can see the appreciation of it. I'm pretty sure Dan Stanzik's never seen The Age of Innocence. No chance. That was the longest Scorsese story of all time, too, by the way. 90% of it was because Ben Lyons is here. He's, he's interrupting you. The crew is setting up things. I'm trying to get your attention. I'm waxing point. Nobody was listening to me. Please, if somebody listened to this, if they have any sort of feedback, please tweet us, Cinephile ESPN. It was too long. That's my feedback. I'm, I'm giving you the exquisite poetry. Anyways, it's Scorsese Stories. Thanks to Ben Lines. Thank you to Mark Myers. Thank you to Miles Teller. It's a Cinephile. We'll see you next time at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.